Welcome. Welcome to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. I host the show each week where we get into the mechanics underneath the curtain of what goes on in the political system here in the United States. And first and foremost, let's start off. This show is being broadcast on Memorial Day, and we want to take a moment to honor those that we have lost due to military service. And uh, that's the purpose of the Memorial Day holiday, where we honor those military personnel who have paid the ultimate price in service to our country. And we honor them and, and cherish their memory. So here we are, still stuck, still hunkered down, still, for the most part, uh, not able to have anything like what a pre-coronavirus normal looks like. Although, it's been all, in all the news this week, um, all of the states now, to some form or another, are actually reopening and allowing people to get back into some of the, the social and collective activities that they are used to. Most notably, you know, as again, this is Memorial Weekend. Usually, that is the kickoff for the summer season, and it is usually highlighted by a just flocking of people to the beaches, the parks, to amusement parks and other entertainment and recreation locations. However, as we've seen in all of the news discussions this week, the concerns about crowds gathering and maintaining you know, that, that social distance, that six feet or more separation and wearing masks has risen to the top of the heap in terms of the controversy that's going on surrounding the coronavirus COVID-19 outbreak here in this country. So let's dive into that for a second, shall we? First things first, uh, doing the number count as we always do. Uh, as of today, uh, 1.65 million confirmed cases have been identified here in the United States with uh, 97,800 people uh, that have died from the illness. Just put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that num those numbers in a minute. Um, so the virus continues to uh, work its way around and through our country, uh, even though in some areas, particularly the, the hot spots from early on in the outbreak, uh, the curve has, uh, for the most part, flattened and or is uh, dropping a little bit, uh, notably in New York and in uh, some of the urban areas in California and Washington State and a few others. However, what we are seeing is that we're seeing daily increases in the number of, of cases confirmed in other areas of the country. So it's kind of a mixed message. Uh, it does look like, yes, uh, again, depending on where you live, it does look like the, the uh, disease is starting to ease up, and I don't want to jinx it, but it does look like the curves are moving in a downward direction. Uh, for most of the states, however, uh, there is still either a, a bare entrance into the flattening part of the curve, or they are still on the upswing, which in light of the fact that, as I said, you know, most of the states are in fact opening up, kind of flies in the face as to what our medical and scientific uh, experts have been telling us. Uh, you know, most of uh, the states have been operating under a form of the same three-phase principle that the government laid out. That is, the first phase is states need to prove 
a 14-day time frame of declining uh, case, uh, new case uh, outbreaks uh, and, and deaths, as well as that they have an adequate uh, testing, uh, tracing, and, and that they have an adequate testing process, uh, tracing process, and that they have sufficient hospital beds and ICU beds to accommodate you know, any small spikes that may occur in their area. Well, for the most part, um, most of the states that are open now uh, don't meet that criteria. Uh, but the pressure, uh, both politically and economically, has been on hot and heavy to get the states reopening, not only to you know, get people out of their houses and back you know, into something like what a normal life looked like uh, eight months ago, but also for economic reasons and to get them back out and moving money around the economy in order to bring the economy back and, and strengthen it. So, you know, as we move forward through this, it's still real early. Uh, really, the, the push on getting people back out uh, from their houses is really only about a week uh, or two weeks old. Um, but I will say that you know, we are seeing reports of increases in cases in some of those areas that opened back up early. So, you know, the jury's still out, but it remains to be seen that if this, you know, rush to get back out into, uh, into life uh, is going to, you know, force us to pay a very heavy price. Uh, if you've watched the news or, you know, checked your social media lately, you've seen the scenes from places like Daytona Beach and, you know, beaches in California and in, in New York. And to a varying degree, people are abiding by the rules that have been set out. In many places, people are observing distancing between their groups on the beach themselves. Um, you know, and, you know, some are wearing masks, but what we see more and more is that, you know, people are gathered together in tight bunches, they're not wearing masks, they're, you know, they're basically partying hardy, um, even though everything that the, that the medical and scientific community tells us is the, the most possible way of spreading this disease, even outside the risk of the particles that we exhale or that come out of our mouths when we talk or shout or sing uh, are, are the quickest way to transmit the disease from one person to another. Uh, related to that, we saw a push by the Trump administration uh, to get the houses of worship in this country back open and functioning uh, more toward the way they did uh, again, eight months ago before the, the virus took hold in this country. And, you know, again, it's, it is a matter of people being in close proximity to one another. Um, you know, the scientific community has told us that, you know, if we are singing or shouting, you know, that is the most dense way of, of those droplets of spray that come out of our mouths when we speak, uh, that they can be populated out into the area. We're also seeing an increase in air travel and other, you know, public forms of transportation. And again, you know, if you're in an airplane and you're in an enclosed environment, you know, obviously now the airlines are requiring that everyone on board wear masks. And, you know, it, it's still, 
can create a problem if someone you know coughs or sneezes that gets caught in the circulation system and you know it can you know travel in the area that you're sitting in and you're in the plane and, and create problems for your fellow passengers so you know we're we're moving out into this brave new world of life after covid uh, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with the infection rate and subsequently the death rate to that however as as the numbers we've cited we are fast approaching and it looks like that we will we will hit that june 1 target of having a hundred thousand people that have died from this disease now you know you could be one of those ones who you know believes that you know i I can go, I don't need to wear my mask, this is a free country, I can do what I want. Uh, or you can be in that camp that says, you know, if you're wearing a mask, you're not only protecting us, you're protecting yourself. Um, there, there's argument going back and forth on that. There have been protests about it. There have been fights, you know, and even people have been killed uh, over whether or not they're going to wear a mask in a given situation. All I can say is, you know, we need to exercise some common sense. We need to listen to the facts that are out there and, you know, take all of the, the information coming from the media uh, on both sides of the issue with that grain of salt, as we always mention, and look into and see what, what are the real and true ways that this disease gets spread. One of the things we learned this week is the initial fear that you know surface contact uh, with surfaces was a major way of this disease getting spread and while you know surface contact is still one way that the disease spreads itself it is not or it has not been proven to be the major way that it is science and medicine are telling us that the major way this virus spreads is airborne it spreads from you know one person who is infected shedding that disease through their breathing, through their talking, you know, through especially loud talking or singing. That is how this disease gets airborne quickest. And that is also how it uh, can infect other people. One of the things that we've learned over the last few weeks is that the amount of time those droplets stay in the air is actually longer than we initially thought and that even being outside can create a problem where the wind can carry these droplets you know, for a greater distance uh, and allow them to stay airborne for a longer period of time. So the bottom line is people, you know, while it's great to get out of the house, you know, everybody's been cooped up for you know, weeks and months and you know, cabin fever set in, I get all that, but remember, this is a disease that is transmitted person to person it is transmitted where groups of people are in close proximity to each other, and it is transmitted uh, where people don't take the proper you know, protective advice and particularly wearing a mask while outside. So while, while I understand you know, the frustration and you know, in some cases the defiance that occurs, uh, many times, and, and what we really need to think about is what is the greater good? So, you know, I'm, I'm a believer when I go outside, um, whether I'm going to be in a crowd or not, I'm wearing my mask. I'm, I'm practicing social distancing in the stores that I have to go to and so forth. 
you know, it's just common sense, basic things that we should be doing to try and curtail the spread of this illness. You know, that that's kind of that that intro to our, our update on on COVID for this week. Uh, it, it still continues to impact, you know, everything you know, in our society, uh, particularly poli- politics. You know, this week, uh, a news news alert came out from the White House that President Trump had ordered that the National Guard troops that had been, you know, dispersed to areas of the country um, were to be withdrawn. And while that didn't signal that their service was no longer needed, uh, it was a signal to bring those troops back, you know, release them from duty. Now, the problem with that is, in most cases, what happens is they fell short of the duration of active service that qualifies those guardsmen and women for you know benefits under the the veterans and the GI Bill, notably um, you know uh, getting financial assistance um, and and qualifying for other VA benefits, and in some cases the the deadline where they were de I don't know, pulled out of the field, fell one day short of the 90-day service they needed in order to qualify for those benefits. So, you know, they, you, you have to look at that with kind of a side eye and go, was this a planned thing or was it just coincidence? Uh, don't know. But, you know, it, it just seemed kind of strange. Um you know, related to that, when we're talking about our veterans and our military, one of the, the hot spots that's been identified is in the VA hospital system, and particularly the retired veterans' homes. Like most nursing homes in confined spaces, they've become a hotbed for transmission of the disease. However, the VA has been either slow to react or insufficient to react um, and the number counts that have been coming out of the VA have been questioned and continue to be you know scrutinized and looked at for accuracy you know and really that that's a shame you know the, the especially for the veterans you know in the, the the VA homes these are people that served our country you know we should be doing everything and I mean everything that we can to to take care of them, to care for them, to pay them back for the the service they gave to our country. So the fact that the VA network is falling short on these people is really unacceptable. Uh, and it's possible, and this is you know being studied, it's possible that the number of veterans who are infected with the disease is drastically undercounted. They're not counting the veterans who have died at home or you know they are definitely not counting the homeless veterans who have died on the streets so the number of veterans who who have died from the COVID-19 disease may be substantially higher than what's already being being reported and this is something that we need to make sure that we're talking to our elected officials to get to the bottom of that they should and must focus on the health of our retired veterans um, you know related um, as I said earlier in, in the shows, or I think I said last week in the show, the Trump administration is still threatening to uh, cut off 
federal assistance, uh, particularly reimbursements for COVID-19 expenses for those states that have sanctuary cities. In addition, one of the newest uh, little nuggets in, in this political football game uh, with the COVID-19. And, you know, make sure you put a pin in this one also, because this is guaranteed to be part of the debates going forward as we approach the November election. Uh, a study was released from Columbia University, uh, and it basically highlighted that had the administration responded to this illness, you know, a, a week earlier or two weeks earlier, between 30 and 50,000 people that have died might not have died. If our, if our response to this had been earlier, and we were able to get prepared and move the necessary material out and have it available to where it needed to be that a large number of the people that have died would not have died. Now, you know, you can, you can search for the Columbia study uh, on lockdown delays cost at least 36,000 lives and read it for yourself, make your own judgment. But, you know, this is going to be an issue that's going to be brought up in the presidential as well as the state and local elections all up and down the ticket on both sides of the political spectrum. And it is something that, you know, is and should be a major concern to us as citizens of this country. One of the things we expect is that when there is an emergency that our government, that our country will respond to this in a quick and timely fashion with the resources that are needed. Not have political-based conversations about the pros and cons of the disease, that it's gonna go away, that warm weather, you know, all of the things that we heard through January and February coming from this administration, really at a time when people were contracting this disease and many people were you know, working their way toward a situation where they're going to be in a hospital and ultimately may not come out of that hospital alive. So, you know, that's a big deal. It's something that if, if our candidates are not talking about it, we need to bring that up. We need to bring it to their attention and ask them the question, hey, Columbia University in their study back in May said that if the government had responded earlier, far fewer people would have died from this disease. What's your position on that? You know, then that transcends party. This is, you know, as I said, we expect our government to take care of us. That's why we send them there. That's why we elect them, so that they can do the things that a federal government or a state government can do that individuals can't just because of economies of scale and so forth and infrastructure and all of that. When our government fails us in those critical needs, we need to take them to task. We need to be asking the questions. So put that in your call to action book, uh, ladies and gentlemen. That's something we need to be checking into to find out what our elected officials from local all the way up to the federal you know, know about this, what their response to it is, what things they, they believe they need to do in order to make sure that this kind of event does not happen again in the future. So, you know, that being said, here are some, some other things that have transpired within the last week uh, related and not related to the COVID-19, but definitely highlighting that, you know, even in the midst of this crisis, the games are still being played, ladies and gentlemen. So, 
um, about a week ago, a news report came out that an economic advisor in the White House who is not a medical professional, is not a, uh, a pandemic professional or expert, has no experience in response to a national you know, medical emergency, uh, was tasked with devising a new method, a new methodology for calculating the coronavirus deaths. And the model that he developed uh, called the a cubic, C-U-B-I-C model, um, prepared by White House economist Kevin Hassett, shows that coronavirus deaths would actually go down to zero nationally by the 15th of May. Well, as of the, the broadcast of this show, that was 10 days ago, and we actually added another 20,000 deaths or so to the count since then, so I guess that model is disproved. But the, the fact that this model was put out there, that it was being referenced and being used by administration officials, really points to a critical flaw in their thinking and a critical failure of policy in, in allowing an unproven, unvetted, untested model to become a basis, even part of a basis, for our national policy on a national pandemic uh, or epidemic surging across this country. You know, it, it just makes you ask questions as to, you know, what's going on, you know, at the uppermost levels of the administration. What's their thinking process? What are they trying to do? You know, are they really trying to turn this from a medical and humanitarian crisis into a purely political uh, crisis to a is is driving the economy's growth more important than stemming the number of American citizens that die every day from you know an illness or or something else. As I said, we are well on the way. We are really close, and unfortunately, we are really close to having a hundred thousand people that have died as a result of this disease. Whether or not you believe that earlier intervention would save you know, lives, um, we still have to deal with the fact that 100,000 people have died. And you know, when you take that and look in the lens of the people who are flaunting the, the best advice that we're getting from the science and medical community, they're not wearing masks, they're in the face of other people, they're clustered together in tight groups, uh, you know, in large groups, uh, potentially spreading this disease even more widely. You know, the, the mayor of Daytona Beach said, you know, his concern was not only for the citizens in his community, but the fact that people were coming from all over the country down to Florida, down to Daytona Beach, down to these tourist uh, areas, and, you know, they could acquire the disease and take it back home with them and infect their family, their friends, and that we'll start to see these little mini spikes pop up all around the country from these people who traveled and really didn't follow good, solid, common sense uh, medical advice and you know, scientific advice and, and do the things they need to do to protect themselves and others. So, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting summer. 
um, you know, we are going to have to adjust. When I say we, I mean America is going to have to adjust to operating at you know a a new type of normal with regard to curtailing the spread of this pandemic. It's not going to go away, you know, in the next week, ten days, month, or whatever. This is going to be with us for a while. Um, they're already looking ahead to the fall and early winter to see what the potential is for an even more severe uh, outbreak of this disease here in the United States. So, you know, while it's great, you know, it, it's good to get out. It's long overdue. You know, the, the, the good advice is, you know, let's not forget to practice our common sense. Let's not forget to do the things we need to do to protect ourselves, our family, our neighbors, and our communities. All right, so with that being said, we'll take our first break here. When we come back after the break, we're gonna pick up with more of how the coronavirus is impacting our daily lives and some of the impacts that we're seeing, as well as we're gonna look at you know, the, the, the winners of the Gaff of the Week Award in politics. Uh, we've got a couple of those that we'll talk about. So we'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Fired Up. This is Steve. I'm right here with you every week, as always. Uh, you're listening on WJMSRadio.com. Thank you for tuning in. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Drums, please. a bit of a break from the norm just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control it's cool to dance but what about a groove that soothes and moves romance give me a soft subtle mix and if it ain't broke then don't try to fix it and think of the summers of the past adjust the bass and let the alpine blast pop in my cd and let me run around and put your car on cruise and lay back because it's the summertime And checking out the fellas to tell them who's best Riding around in your Jeep or your Benzos Or in your Nissan sitting on Lorenzo's Back in Philly we be out in the park A place called the Plateau is where everybody go Guys out hunting and girls doing likewise Honking at the honey in front of you with the light eyes She turn around to see what you beeping at It's like the summer's a natural aphrodisiac And with a pen and pad I compose this rhyme To hit you and to get you equipped for the summertime And 
but I need a new pair. Cause basketball courts in the summer got girls there. The temperature's about 88. Hop in the water plug, just for old time's sake. Break to your crib, change your clothes once more. Cause you're invited to a barbecue to start at four. Sitting with your friends as y'all reminisce about the days growing up and the first person you kiss. And as I think back, makes me wonder how the smell from a grill can spark up nostalgia. All the kids playing out front, little boys messing around with the girls playing double dutch. While the DJ spinning a tune as the old folks dance at your family reunion. Then six o'clock rolls around. You just finished wiping your car down. It's time to cruise, so you go to the summertime, hang out, it looks like a car show. Everybody come looking real fine, fresh from the barbershop, applying the beauty salon. Every moment fronting and maxing, chilling in the car, they spend all day waxing. Leaning to the side, but you can't speed through two miles an hour, so everybody sees you. There's an air of love and of happiness, and this is the Fresh Prince's new definition of summer madness. And we're back. Thank you for joining us here on Fired Up. This is Steve. I'm your host each week, and we look at the political systems right here on WJMSRadio.com. And uh, I wanted to pick up on where I left off in the first segment with a few more points. Not only has the White House been using a flawed predicting model for the COVID-19 disease, uh, other news that came out around the statistics and the numbers have shown that uh, the actually the CDC uh, and other reporting agencies have been combining uh, reports coming out from the two testing methods that are out there, the viral testing and the antibody testing, into one collective number when really they should have been reported as separate numbers because the responses that come back from those tests indicate two different things. Uh, one indicates whether or not the antibody test, for example, indicates whether or not the antibodies for the COVID-19 uh, disease are present in your system, while the virology test indicates whether or not you actively had it. What's the difference? Well, if you had the COVID-19 and were what they call asymptomatic, or you didn't display any of the key indicators that we look for, you know, fever, cough, you know, etc then you know it, it is there's no way of telling that you actually had the disease however your body has produced antibodies against it which is why that you have recovered from it uh, and you know that is one set of people that we need to to be aware of because in our tracing efforts we need to know who actually can you know transmit the disease and even if you're asymptomatic if you don't show the signs you can in fact be transmitting the COVID-19 disease uh, in your daily activities out in the public. Uh, the, the virology test 
determines whether or not you actually have active COVID-19 in your system right now. That is that you are sick with the disease. Uh, usually uh, you will be exhibiting symptoms, etc. And um, you know that is another set of numbers that should be reported. So the CDC has, um, has owned up to that uh, process problem. They are correcting their reporting so we should see in the next uh, week or so uh, revisions to the numbers, perhaps reporting on the two, uh, two forks of the information that they're getting, those that have the antibodies and those that actually have the active disease in their systems and are affected by it. Um, in addition to the, the gaffe at the federal level in Florida, uh, the individual who was responsible for computing the, the statistics on the Florida outbreak of the disease uh, was actually uh, fired because, or not fired, she actually resigned because she was asked by the Florida state government to adjust the numbers uh, to improve the overall picture of Florida in anticipation of the reopening of the state uh, you know, last week and she refused to do that. You know, side note, kudos to her for standing up for integrity. Um, you know, and this is another thing that we need to keep our eye out and our ear out for. Uh, when we hear that, you know, our state governments are looking at ways of, you know, slanting the report or spinning the numbers that come out, we need to be asking questions about that. Why are you doing it? What's your basis? Why are, is it important that these numbers be adjusted? And what does it mean you know, once that adjustment's made? Does it mean that the disease is, is less impactful than it is? Or you know, is it just a political tool to, to aid in, you know, again, is it just a way that our elected or incumbent uh, leaders can show that you know they're making progress against this devastating disease when in fact it's really they're playing a numbers game you know again you know the numbers and you know the politics that gets interspersed with this pandemic um, are are something we need to be aware of and we need to be actively you know in, engaged with to make sure that you know the information that we're getting is as I always say is factual and actually reflects what's going on out there from a real standpoint. Whether, whether you are in support of current you know, processes and procedures in your state or if you're against them. The one thing that both sides need to have in order to make that informed decision and that informed course of action is the truth, is the facts, you know, is untainted uh, information that allows us to make our decisions based on our own best assessments of what we need. Um, you know, and, and this is something that has, has been a huge problem uh, throughout, not only this pandemic, but with every major issue that we have addressed uh, in our political lives. Um, you know, it, it, is, it is clear that as the elections uh, approach and the, the November elections being so particularly important uh, in this cycle, uh, again, whether you are you know, supporting the current incumbent administration or you are opposed to it, everybody agrees that this election is critical, that you know, voter turnout and, and all of that needs to happen and must happen in as unfettered a way as possible. And 
that segues me into uh, something else that came out of the current administration at, at, the, at the White House level is that, you know, in, in the past week, the Trump administration has threatened to withhold federal funding dollars, particularly in light of how much money the states are expending to defend against the coronavirus COVID-19 disease impacts in their individual states. Well, the Trump administration has threatened to withhold federal funding from any state that looks to expand the accessibility of uh, or the use of absentee voting uh, processes in their state if they don't already have them. And you know, every state right now is looking at how their absentee voter process works, is looking at how they can make it, you know, more open so that people who want to vote and should vote uh, don't have to risk their health and safety uh, by having be, to be required to go to a polling place. Um, you know, there are still a few primary elections remaining, so make sure that you're getting out there and finding out when the deadline for requesting your absentee ballot is, because uh, those dates vary. And, you know, also, you know, we need to keep in mind that, you know, we have the Wisconsin example that shows that as a result, as a direct result, they have traced people as a direct result of people having to go to a polling place. Uh, somewhere between 70 and 100 cases of COVID-19 were identified to people and to workers in the polls where the virus was spread during their exposure in those places. Now, you know, as you look at that, you know, uh, again, keep in mind that if one person is infected with the the COVID-19, number one, they may be in the group that is asymptomatic, that doesn't display the the warning signs that we know about for the coronavirus, again, fever, coughing, etc. And two, that every person that's, that's infected has the potential of infecting two or three or more additional people that they come in contact with. You know, if, if you go out and vote and you bring it back to your home, it's likely that you know your spouse or your partner may become infected, your kids may become infected, your grandmother, grandfather, etc., may become infected by this disease by the, the simple fact that you went out and voted. Now, I say that and I'll say this. Do not let COVID-19 keep you from exercising your right to vote. You know, if your state is restricting access to absentee ballots and your only recourse is to go to a polling place, then, you know, go to that polling place, wear your mask, wear gloves, bring some some antiseptic wipes with you, wipe down the machine before you use it. Make sure you do everything common sense that you can to protect yourself, but we still need to get out and vote. Not only is the election important, but remember, this is a census year, and the number of people residing in a community is critical to uh, federal funding that comes as a result of the census data that will be collected or that is being collected as we speak uh, about the population of our country. So as much as, you know, it would be easy to say, you know, this pandemic is dangerous and to stay home, that's not what needs to happen. 
we need to find every mechanism possible to make sure that we're getting out there, that we're getting our vote registered, that we're getting our vote counted, uh, not only to determine who is going to represent us as elected officials, but also because there's a critical need to have an accurate count of the number of residents in this country as we move into the census uh, counting and, and, and analysis uh, period that will come over the next year or two once the census data has been tabulated. Um, so, you know, it, this, this, this virus uh, has gone from being just a medical uh, problem to being a, a life problem for our country. You know, obviously 36 or 37 million people have lost their jobs either temporarily or permanently as a direct result of this virus. Uh, our economy has, has suffered a huge setback economically uh, as a result of the shutdown of most of the businesses you know, in our country that were, especially those that were non-essential. Um, you know, and, and even as we talk about essential versus non-essential, there's controversy again this week about you know, meat, plat meat packing plants and food processing plants and how those industries, just by their very nature of operation, uh, are hot spots for coronavirus uh, infection. You know, we've talked about how the prison population in this country has, you know, been devastated in many places uh, with infection rates as high as 60 percent in some of the prisons because they are in an enclosed environment and there's no way to socially distance uh, prisoners in, in jails. It's just they're not built that way. Um, we've talked about how, you know, the, again, in, in this show, we were talking about how, you know, people have been, you know, flaunting the law and saying, you know, I'm going out, I'm not wearing my mask, I don't, you know, I, I'm, you can't make me wear a mask is basically what they're trying to say. Now, you know, they have, they have the right, you know, this is a free country. However, that freedom needs to be balanced against the greater good of our, our homes, our communities, our neighborhoods, our states, and our country. You know, if you're not wearing a mask and you can infect, you know, two, three, five, or more people who can then go out and infect two, three, five, or more people, now you can get to see how this, this disease has spread so rapidly in our country and why the United States has the highest infection rate and highest death rate in the world for this disease. You know, other countries that have more restrictive societies where they're able to more uh, firmly lock down and isolate uh, their populations have seen their infection rates go way down. You know, and, you know, usually, you, you know, you hear about China, you hear about uh, South Korea and Germany, but there was a news article that came out that showed New Zealand has gotten their infection rate down to single digits. That is less than 10 infections, uh, you know, per day, per week, whatever. So basically, they have stopped the progression of the disease uh, through the practice that's been recommended by the medical and scientific communities. Now, of course, we caveat that saying, you know, there aren't 337 million people in New Zealand, but the, the facts per capita don't lie. They have gotten their infection rate almost down to zero, which means that, you know, it is possible 
how it's going to happen in a country the size of the United States, you know, yeah, it's going to require a lot more work, a lot more effort, a lot more infrastructure, um, you know, more testing, more uh, tracing and so forth. You know, and, you know, if we're talking about testing, one of the things we should be asking our elected officials about, and I've heard this in the news media back and forth for the last two months, you know, in terms of the number of tests per day, per week, per month that are being conducted in this country and how many we need. Now, remember, the United States of America has a population in excess of 330 million people, um, you know, and you know, we are doing, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, one to three million tests, you know, uh, a week. In order for us to get an accurate picture of the spread of this disease, we need to be testing 10 times that, and we're nowhere close. You know, the, the value of testing, you know, is that it identifies the boundaries of where this disease is impacting. If, you know, you take a, a city, for example, and, and for sake of argument, we'll take the city I live in here in Allentown, Pennsylvania. If you have outbreaks in your city, as we have here in PA, and you test outward from Allentown until you see testing numbers that are low enough to really indicate that the, the d disease is not spreading at out at outbreak levels, um, that can help you define the border of where the focus needs to be. In order for you to understand how many people in an area are being tested and how that pattern spreads out across the state, you need to test and find the edges of that, of that box, essentially. You need to be able to say, okay, you know, we've tested, you know, 100 miles out from, you know, here in Allentown and the testing rate in town is X, the testing rate, you know, way outside of town is much lower at Y. Therefore, we need to focus our efforts within this boundary in order to, you know, control and curtail the disease. That's, that's the other value of testing, is it tells us where this disease is most rampant, where we need to focus our largest efforts in order to, to corral it so that we can reduce the spread outward from people that come into the, the area and travel back out and so forth. So, you know, it, it's still a work in progress. We still don't have a, a cure. There are some promising vaccines that are, are coming out uh, from testing and are going out for more extensive clinical trials. Uh, but vaccines, in order to, to get us to a, an immune level, much like we have with the flu, are still you know, at least a year, maybe as much as 18 months to two years out. You know, and we can't really rush that process. Normal process in a vaccine production is anywhere from you know, four to five years from, from development through testing through clinical trials, through analysis of results before we get to the stage of producing the number of doses needed to effectively treat a country. You know, and you know, just as a side note, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions, maybe even a billion doses of whatever vaccine or vaccines we come up with need to be produced. And that's gonna take some time. So, 
you know, when you hear people talking about, you know, and, and one of the, the criticisms of the current president is that he has been said, we'll have a vaccine by the end of the month. We'll have a vaccine by the end of the week. We'll have a vaccine by the end of the year. There is no realistic basis to that statement. We don't know when those vaccines are going to be ready. You know, if a vaccine looks promising, but they find a, a dramatic side effect that affects one segment of the population, well, that's going to create a problem. That's going to create a slowdown. You know, to put it in perspective, to get from where we were with the uh, initial outbreak of HIV to where we are today, where we have a, a regimen of medicines that can actually, uh, you know, stop that disease and make it what's called non-detectable, uh, took 10 years. You know, in, in a 30-year battle against HIV, it took 10 years to get vaccinations and vaccines in place that were effective against this illness. So, you know, again, we, we, we are seeing how much the coronavirus is impacting everything, you know, in our daily lives. And, you know, it, it's, it's medical, it's economic, and it's political. Uh, one article that came out this week to kind of take a slight tangent is the Department of Justice um, has released Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, and is working on a release for you know Mike Flynn, all people involved in the election campaign of uh, President Trump who were engaged and convicted of some wrongdoing in relation to campaigns or relation to the Russia in, involvement in our 2016 election. You know, these people have been released or, you know, released from prison, from physical prison, put on house arrest, but in other words, taken out of the prison population uh, simply due to the fact that uh, there was a risk for coronavirus for them. Now, this raises the question, and it's, again, something to have a conversation with our, you know, elected officials. And remember, uh, local and county jails are a state function, not a federal function. So you need to be talking with your local people. Um, you know, if they're releasing, you know, a Roger Stone or Paul Manafort, what about the hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of other prisoners who are in either awaiting trial or waiting sentencing, so they have not been convicted of a crime, or in because they cannot afford bail, who are put into these prison populations where the risk is so high of getting the the coronavirus why are we not releasing them you know if if it's good enough for you know Paul Manafort why isn't it good enough for you know your your father brother mother cousin uncle who's incarcerated you know in the county jail where you are and who's been there simply because they can't raise bail money why is it not good enough that these people be put on some type of furloughed release program to take them out of that high-risk population? This is a really important question that we need to be asking of our officials. You know, and you know, in a side note, all of the people that I mentioned who were part of Trump's circle, uh, who were convicted in the Russian investigation and all of that, uh, were released from jail um, with one notable exception. Michael Cohen, who was Trump's attorney, who turned state's evidence and worked with the prosecution against Trump, uh, he's not getting a release. So, you know, what, what's the motive? You know, just asking. 
just asking. You know, Manafort is getting out. They're, they're working on getting Flynn out once they work through some, some political and, and court-related uh, hurdles. Uh, Roger Stone uh, is getting out. Uh, what about poor Michael Cohen? Uh, because he, he turned and, and, and dimed on, on the Trump team, he gets to stay in prison. He gets to stay at risk. You know, just goes to give you an idea of what they're thinking. So, you know, there's a lot to talk about, a lot of things for us to be engaged with. Uh, some closing, uh, a closing note here, um, and, and it's related also to the, the notion of imprisonment. Uh, a federal judge in Florida recently ruled the uh, restriction that the Republican administration in Florida placed on the law that was signed that would allow those uh, offenders who had completed their sentencing, had completed you know, parole and probation, had done everything to basically pay their debt back to society in its entirety, uh, the Republican administration added on to that that there was an expectation that they would fully repay any penalties, fees, fines, or restitution. Uh, and you know, if they could not afford to pay that back, then they would not be given back their right to vote. So this was appealed almost immediately after, after it was signed. And a federal judge just ruled this week that that provision, in effect, made a what is called a poll tax, which is illegal under the Constitution as an impediment for someone to vote. It is illegal to require a test, a payment, a tax, or any kind of uh, administrative process unrelated to identification uh, in exercise of the effort to vote. So if you are a former convicted felon in the state of Florida and you have completed all the requirements of your sentence, uh, you should have your right to vote back. And that's essentially what this judge has said. So that's probably going to be appealed. Uh, we will see. Stay tuned. Another thing to put up on the wall and put a pin in, and we'll come back and keep track of it for you here on Fired Up. So it's been an exciting show um, if you're a political junkie like me. And, you know, a lot of things to process. You know, we, we, we talk about our call to action. Well, We've got some things on our list that we need to be having conversations with our incumbent elected officials, with those that are in office, and with our candidates for office who are seeking to get into office. We need to understand where they are with these, these elements. We need to make sure that we're clear in our messaging to them that this is what we expect of them. Remember, you know, they work for us. It is not the other way around. All right? We need to make sure we have people in there regardless of their party that reflect the way we think and do what we expect them to do so with that being said uh, i hope everyone has had a safe and enjoyable memorial day weekend uh, for those of you that uh, may or may not be looking forward to go back to work tomorrow uh, enjoy that for those of us who are still you know at home job hunting or whatever we're doing uh, keep the faith and things will get better. This is Steve. You've been listening to Fire It Up right here on WJMS Radio. As always, I truly and genuinely appreciate your listening to the show. Uh, please tune back in um, next week as we'll have another episode and we'll talk some more about the things that are impacting our political systems here. Uh, again, our salute to those in military that we have lost on this Memorial Day. 
uh, and to those who are active and our veterans, just realize that we appreciate your service both in actual physical fighting, but also in the efforts that you're doing alongside the other first responders in helping us battle this, this disease that's going across our country. We really do appreciate it. Be safe, stay safe, glove up, mask up, and I will talk to you again in seven days. Take care, everybody. message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're all